0: Tonight we want to introduce I know I've used the word introduction a lot but tonight I want us to ease into the doctrine of scripture and or the doctrine of revelation we will go back over a few things that we started with just to get you up to speed and hopefully tonight will be a good starting point for us and we'll probably spend a session in addition to this or maybe maybe two On the doctrine of scripture. If you remember, uh, it was important to lay a foundation. We spent one particular session on the theology of the church. And we used this big theological term called prolegomena. Which means first things. So there has to be a place where we start. When we start to deal with speaking of theology or doctrine. So So those are the first things that we speak about. And remember the book of Jude, Uh, the church is to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Remember Acts chapter 20, it's the church that the Lord Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood. And so that church that he purchased with his own blood, you and me, we should be able to define and defend the body of truth that has committed our truth committed to its care by God. The truth of God has been committed to us. We should be able to defend and define what that is. We need to be equipped to distinguish truth from error, good theology from bad theology. And I think in our church and multiple churches across the world, we need a revival in theological knowledge. We need a true understanding of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. We really need to understand what the church is for It needs to regain a love for the great doctrines of God's infallible and inerrant word. And so we talked about that in detail. We we discussed how that when it comes to studying all eight major doctrines, that we need to be able to ask the question: what does the Bible say? What has the church believed throughout time? How does it all fit together? And what is the significance of the doctrine for the church today? Now, if we're going to begin by saying, what does the scripture say? It's important to find out what's meant by scripture or meant by revelation. And then last time we met, we talked about the ever ready Christian. How that we need to be ready and willing to defend, to give a defense for the faith that we have. We talked about being ready with action Ready with an answer and ready with attitude. And remember, we walked through atheism, all the world views that were out there. And remember when Kyle and Katie got up and spoke, uh, that should have been affirmation to you all across the world that, (coughs) whether you're Buddhist or Hindu or whatever that is, there is some type of presupposition that they come into it with and what they believe. So atheism is a world without God. Theism uh, is monotheism. But this means belief in one God, which we share that with Muslims, right? But that's not our God, (coughs) of course, that they serve. Uh, We have pantheism, deism, finite theism. We went through all of these, and I hope you remember some of it. And then we talked about the divergence, the six points of divergence between all world religions and Christianity. And remember what we said. One... Distant, removed, even in Islam, they have no understanding of God as Father. What an awesome thing to be able to call our God Father. Uh, Rami Ibrahim is a friend of uh, mine, and he lives in Alabama at this point. But Natalie and I, Tennessee, that's right, he moved. But he and his wife, he, he, Rami, is from Egypt. And he came to faith in Christ based upon being able to call God his Father. And so, what an awesome thing to think about that. Not him only, but others in Egypt. So, distant. Second, Christ alone is Savior for mankind. That's the difference between all world religions and Christianity. The other religions offer great teachers. Only Christianity offers a great Savior. So, ours is the only faith that says you cannot work your way to God or merit a right standing before your own Uh, before your own standing before him. Someone must step in for you and do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. That is divergent from the world religions. Third, all humans are made in the image of God. Why is abortion sin? Because all humans are made in the image of God. And we believe that life begins at conception. Right? But it has something to do. It's tied with the image of God. Number four, purpose and direction. We do see certain patterns that reproduce themselves... But always leading to consummation. Don't fret global warming, right? Because all of history is linear with purpose, and when the world ends, it'll be because God did it, not because man destroyed it. So uh, reincarnation of religions simply go around and around and around. Five: salvation, free gift of God, more made available by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And every other religion and every cult has a works, salvation view of how we attain. A right standing before God. Every world religion has that. You have some kind of work you have to perform to have that standing. Six, our view of the future. Most believe that the body is at best inferior and in some evil. There is no plan for the body. For instance, in a new age way of thinking, the body is a prison house. That's why radical feminists believe that it's a curse... For women to even have to bear children at all because that body is a prison that has captured them. That's terrible thinking, isn't it? It is, but that's what's going on in this world. One day, like the Lord Jesus, this body, the one that I sense uh, getting up from my nap today when his knees were popping a little bit and wobbled through the house, this body is going to be resurrected and glorified. So we see that divergence. There's a battle... Raging, but in our world between naturalism and supernaturalism, and you know what happens when we encourage teaching both creationism in the school along the side of naturalism and evolution. I'm telling you, what wins out every time? Uh, the Word of God wins out. I saw this week and where that whatever bill was passed to allow the Old and New Testament to be taught in Missouri high schools, and that's a blessing. Uh, I certainly would not have to teach it with a slant toward believing it for it to make a huge impact on children's lives. And so we, look, we, we, we pray that God will put teachers in the school that are able to teach history and to, sh- and to share the Old and New Testament and see what God does with it, right? Bring it on. We'll take it. So there's also uh, always going to be a fight between liberalism, or progressivism, and uh, conservativism and or belief in the Bible. So we're not, uh, although there's those six points of divergence between us and world religions, <clears throat> Christianity, there's also a battle within those who claim to be Christian uh, of how they view what the Holy Word of God has to say to us. With that said, I want to remind you that <clears throat> if you're a member of this church, you are a Southern Baptist. And so, uh, we found the other day that this church had actually not voted to accept the 2,000 faith to message. Well, that can't happen. So we will do that, probably the next uh, conference that we have. But I think they told us we have 275 of these. And this is the Baptist faith to message of 2,000. So this means this is what the Southern Baptist Convention believes, Okay. So you're sitting in a SBC church. So stands to reason that you ought to believe this faith and message if you're a Baptist. Oh, I was going to stay there until you said something. <laughs> but, but it has, of course, a statement. And tonight we're talking about the doctrine of revelation or bibliology, what, what we believe about the Bible. And you say, well, why don't you start with God? Because, folks, the Bible is what tells us about our God. If you don't get that straight, you're not going to get anything right about Him. As a matter of fact, in His self-disclosure of Himself, He's given us His Word. So His Word is where we start. And your Baptist faith and message says, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. That's a good statement. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of all divine revelation. Good statement. Uh, I would like for you to get a copy of this and read it before we actually affirm it as a church. What we have affirmed is the 1963. Is that right? Uh, But what we need to affirm is the 2000 faith and message. I didn't know that until this week that we had not affirmed the Baptist faith and message, but we need to affirm that statement of 2,000. So we'll make those available for you between now and the next time we have a conference, uh, church meeting, whatever we call that, so we can affirm uh, uh, unanimously, we pray, the Baptist faith and message. Okay. Now, if you're dealing with something as awesome as the Lord God and What we believe in Christianity is divergent from the world religions. We have to ask ourselves, how do we know about our God? And the knowledge that we have of Him is given to us in multiple ways. If you think about what we learn in the Bible, there is a knowledge of God that is given to us through the creation that He has made. There's a knowledge of God given to us by conscience, according to Romans 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3. There is the knowledge of God given to us ultimately and specifically through the Word of God. So we may ask, how is there a difference between the revelation that God gives to his people? And we have to say, yes, there is a difference. And we, we group them into two categories. They are called general revelation. And it is called specific revelation. For those that look at the world and say, well, yes, we believe in natural revelation, they take that a step too far and come up with natural theology, which is not a good place to stop, all right, at all. However, we believe that God has spoken to us specifically in His Word that is uh, not general revelation, but very specific and given to us about our God and what it says. There, are, there is a chapter in the Old Testament, multiple ones, but chapter 19 of Psalm, Psalm 19, if you'll make your way over there, let's study that for a few moments. We want to embrace tonight what God has done in revealing himself to us. Francis Schaeffer, who helped Christians think philosophically and deeper about God, wrote a book years ago called, He is There and He is Not Silent. And he points out in this book that our God is a talking God. Aren't you thankful for that? That He is a talking God. (coughs) How has He spoken? Well, we will see that He talks to us through nature, through conscience, in history, and He also speaks to us through His living Word, His written Word. Word. So Psalm 19 brings together God's natural and special revelation better than any passage in the entire Bible. So let's track through there and see how this works. 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens... "...and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Now, the first point, 1 through 6, will speak to us concerning God speaking through nature. The first six verses are a self-disclosure of our God as He has spoken to us through His creation and or through nature. In nineteen one, the Bible says, "...the heavens speak of His glory." The heavens speak out. They're preaching a sermon to one another. The firmament shows His handiwork. Just look up to the heavens. They scream of His handiwork and that there is a God. Second, time speaks of His glory. In chapter 19, 2 through 4, someone is behind time, right? Someone is standing behind, working behind the scenes and above time and before time that brought all this into existence. He has brought it all into order. If you remember when we. The first lesson we had that most of you said. Wow we need to listen to that a couple more times. That one. In that one we talked about the transcendence of God. That transcendent understanding of who God is. Meaning that there's no way that this world blew up in a big bang theory. And you come out with what we have. With exact order. There has to be a transcendent being. Above time and beyond time. And one. Uh, he is the uh, just cause. Behind all that there is. And so the heavens speak of his glory. Time speaks of his glory. How about the sun? The sun even speaks. S-U-N of, its, of his glory. In 4 through 6. Here's where the sun lives. It's like a bridegroom. Just I saw it this morning. Boom. Just straight out of nowhere comes the sun out of its chamber. It shines majestically and goes away and it runs its race. Its rising is from one end and its circuit is to another. Just look at the sun and how it operates and how it sustains us and how it provides for us. And you think this earth just happened to wind up and just end up at the perfect distance from the sun. Just the right size, giving off the exact amount of heat that we need. It neither burns us up nor freezes us. Folks, that's possible because God put the sun in order. God did this. Uh, Some people say, well, you know what? We're just luckier than Mars. Poor old Mars was just too close and it burned up. We just struck a better deal than Venus that has no life. The fact of the matter is the heavens declare and scream to us that our God is the creator God. Recall that this is much like Romans chapter 1 when it talks about God speaking through nature. Uh, just hold your finger there and let me flip over here and just whet your appetite. We'll, we'll probably spend more time. We will definitely spend more time here throughout the course of our study. Chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Alright, we're dealing with revelation, right? We're dealing with the knowledge of God. Uh, what can we say about uh, the heathen or anybody that uh, may not be uh, a recipient of specific revelation? In other words, we can't read the Word to them and them hear God's Word. What can we say about them? Verse 20, for His invisible attributes namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So we might say that general revelation and the knowledge of God is enough to send everybody in this room to hell. If you never got a single verse of Scripture read to you, Not a single verse of John 3, 6, nothing. Then according to the word of God, you would be guilty of high treason before God simply because He made the world and you didn't recognize it. Pretty strong, isn't it? But that's what that says. We are absolutely without excuse. That is the teaching of the word regarding natural or general revelation. But notice there's a switch When we get to verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Do you notice the switch between the heavens declare His glory and a Romans 1, 18 through 22 type of understanding? Natural revelation, general revelation versus verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So listen to the power of the word of God and what the scripture does for us. Natural revelation is God's creation and how he speaks through creation, through the sun, through everything He's made. Uh, the heavens declare His righteousness and His glory. But when it comes to the Scripture, listen to the power of the Word and what it does for us. What does He say about the Scripture? One, it's perfect and it strengthens. Verse 7. Second, it is sure and it gives wisdom. 19.7. Number three, it is right and brings joy. 19.8 it is pure and provides direction 198 it is clean and endures forever you know the new testament parallel the word of the grass withers the flower fades but the word of the lord endures forever 6 it is true and righteous altogether 199 7 it is valuable and priceless 8 it is delicious and sweet chapter 19 verse 10 9 it is helpful and rewarding 1911 10 it is instructive and cleansing. Number 11 it is protective and liberating. 1913 and and 12 it is transforming and saving. So his words actually become my words. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Psalm 19 I could. Yet the reason I give this to you is to help you see that God is there and he is not silent. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he has spoken to us through a natural revelation and specifically through His Word. He is not silent. He speaks in nature and He speaks through His Word. He has not left Himself in this world without a witness. So if He has spoken, our goal should be to know Him. Theology is to think correctly about God. Theology is getting to know God in the terms of who He is and what He has done for us. The fact that He has revealed Himself brings about the necessity of theology. Can we get that one put up, uh, David? Under the prolegomena again. Sorry about that. <coughs> see that? I can see that better than I can this one. Right? So there is the necessity of theology so that we can describe Christianity, define it and defend it. The necessity brings about the possibility of doing theology, and therefore some presuppositions must be present. We need theology regardless of what the naysayers say. You know, in our world today, especially church life, people say, you don't need that doctrine. You don't need to know you don't need to know all that theology. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it says that knowledge puffs up. So if it puffs up, we don't need 101, 102, and 103 in theology. Now, people say, we don't need all the theology. We just need to get out and start doing things. Now, folks, I'm not against doing things, right? Uh, We know that the Bible tells us what we are supposed to do. But hear me clearly. Knowing precedes doing. Doing you got to be orthodox before you move into orthopraxy. You need to think about doctrine before you begin to do the duty. Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. If you don't think theology is important, then you're not too smart. That's a nice way for me of saying it, right? Why the necessity? Well, look at the chart. If this is the case, can we be sure that we can do it? Yes, why? Because God has revealed Himself. That's why we can actually move from necessity to the possibility, the revelation of God, the nature of man, man is rational, man is spiritual, but we move to presuppositions about theology. And what is central? Well, uh, the primary way God has spoken to us is through His Word. Agreed? So we have to start with the presupposition that we believe the Bible is true. We believe what Moses said... Is equally as inspired as what Jesus said. No matter if you have a red letter edition or not, right? We tend to think, oh, Jesus said the red letter. I mean, if you got it in red, Jesus said it. I'm telling you, if what Moses said is not absolutely authoritative and right and true, then what Jesus said is not authoritative, right, and true. We take the whole Bible, the Bible is true. From Genesis to Revelation. So the Bible is also understandable. That doesn't mean there's not some difficulties and some tension. But the Bible is understandable. Third, the Bible must be interpreted plainly and naturally. Plainly means sensus plenior. So primarily when you read through the Bible, the natural reading of the text, let it plainly speak to you. And it must be interpreted naturally. And since the scriptures contain the objective revelation of God, they alone are authoritative. Now, I don't want to pound this too hard, but I'm going to tell you: if there's anyone that puts a writing beside the Bible and they take that over the scripture, then they're 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 a heretical group. Now, I hate to be I hate to be so pointed, but I have to be that pointed. In Catholicism, they'll tell you they believe the Bible. But when you challenge them, they're going to actually believe their traditions that are written outside of the Bible. No, that can't happen. If you believe that the sole authority of God disclosing Himself in divine revelation is the Word of God, then we take no other resource as authoritative based on the teaching of the Word and what it discloses about our God. It is a closed canon. We don't take the traditions of the Catholic Church. We don't take uh, traditions of Greek Orthodox. No matter who it is, we take the Word of God, period, as authoritative for life and practice. Y'all understand? So the Book of Mormon, uh, whatever Jehovah Witnesses bring from there, I don't have that, I'm not giving you a world religion study tonight, I could. But the fact is, all of them have their traditions and or extra-biblical things that they uh, lean upon uh, that are not the Scriptures. We believe as Christians, and this is the way it's always been, from the inception of the writings, that what God has given to us is authoritative. So we take the Bible and what it says. Okay? And God has disclosed Himself to us. Theology is possible. Had God not given us the Bible, we could... We couldn't know Him specifically. You couldn't know about Him in the reference of Him revealing Himself. We can know Him and love Him and talk with Him and we can read about Him. We can come to understand what our God is like through the Word. He also made us in His image. He also made us rational, right? And He made us spiritual. Because He has made us this way, we are capable of understanding God's revelation of Himself. And finally, for the ones of us who are evangelicals, we begin with the presupposition that God is there and that He is a God of truth and the Bible is His Word to us. That's in your Baptist faith and message. Right? I read it to you. That's what we believe. So when we talk about doing theology, this should be helpful to you. We need to define it. We need to learn how to approach it. And finally, we need to divide it up and be able to get a handle on it. And these classic divisions, uh, there you go, uh, of getting a handle on theology is designed to help us go through our study. So next time we meet, we'll probably deal with, a, with some background on the historical understanding of the Scriptures and how, the, how historically that went through. Because you think about the different uh, councils that met throughout time. The Council of Trent was actually uh, more of a Catholic slant and it was after the Reformation and they totally 100% said that they rejected uh, that you're saved by grace through faith. The Catholic Church has in its documents the Council of Trent where it would say it it is Christ plus works equals salvation. Clearly, we believe that it's Christ Plus, nothing (laughs) equals salvation. There's there's a major difference there between what we believe and what the Bible teaches. Well, historically, what has the church believed? So, that's the discipline of tracing the historical development of the doctrine as it's recorded in the writings of individual and church councils. Is that beneficial? Well, you better believe it's beneficial. Um, When we start thinking about the Reformation... And we even go way back from that, and go back to Augustine, and we go back to different writers. What what did they say back in the day? I mean, if you only lived uh, uh, eighty or ninety years uh, from the time of the writings, or let's say uh, Eusebius or Josephus, if perhaps Josephus was even a contemporary with John the Baptist, if that be I'm not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. If that be the case, can we not learn some things? From historical writings, yes, we can. But your early church fathers don't trump the Bible. It's the other way around. The Word of God is given to us by Him. So historically, we can go back and we can talk about uh, Luther and Calvin's what what were their strengths? How did what did they write about historically? How does it help us understand where we are today? And then, of course, we move over to uh, systematic theology. So, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, Augustine, Origen, Justin Martyr. What about the medieval time? Anselm and Thomas Aquinas. And what about the Reformation time? Calvin, Zwingli. You had some liberals. Friedrich Schleimacher back then. Karl Barth. You had feminist theology that came to fruition. And And here's the deal. There's a lot of different Jesuses out there. Which one are you talking about? If it's not the Jesus of the Bible... It's not the Jesus at all. Okay? I heard Oprah say that one time on TV. That's not my Jesus. Well, her Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Because she clearly, in that statement before, gave a universal approach and or something terribly theological, period. Had no theology. We call it bad theology. And I'm not just picking on Oprah. Uh, That's the majority of people in the world. So in Revelation we understand the revealing part of Christ that historically you can go back in the Scripture and find out how the Scriptures were dealt with historically back in the day. And then systematically is the discipline of putting a scheme doctrinally developed which incorporate into its system uh, what we've learned about God. And, and in not only that, but how is it fleshed out in areas of life. So we may... There may be a little different systematic theology between me and, say, you. You may have compiled things a little different and be on a a different scale or a different understanding systematically than I am. That's possible. you got a right to be wrong. But, no, seriously, systematic uh, is building upon how would you systematize all the teachings of the Word and put it into a discipline and study it and apply it to life. But the big one, folks, is biblical theology. It's the discipline which investigates the truth about God and the universe as set forth in the unfolding revelation of the Bible. In other words, this is what we're, this is what we're heading toward and wanting as a church and as members. We want to have a biblical theology. Is it, is it um, supported and or uh, is there a backdrop For history to be a part of that, well, you better believe it. Uh, Not everybody in history was wrong. Not everybody in history was right about translation of Scripture. Or not translation, interpretation. And then systematic, putting that together. But the goal, folks, is to be a student of the Word who has a biblical theology. You have taken what you believe about God from the Word. Not the AG church. Not the Baptist church. Not the Pentecostal church, not the Methodist church, but from the Bible. Does that make sense? So, again, when we study biblical theology, uh, obviously you're going to study things that are challenging, but it's still theological. It still helps us think about the God that we belong to. So that's how we're going to do that. Now, in the in considering Revelation or Scripture, uh, the Bible reminds us, Of the Jesus that we actually see uh, before us in the Word of God. In Revelation, he is the warrior lamb who comes at the last time to clean house, right? The world like the the world word-like lamb, meek and mild, but not the lion who will rule the world, is kind of what the world wants, right? They don't want that lion, that lamb-like lion. So I bring that up to let you know that, again, with Oprah and others who who have a Jesus, but He's not the Jesus of the Bible, you have to reject that. Because, again, if your authoritative structure is that you believe the Bible is the Word alone, the Word of God alone, its doctrines are holy, precepts are binding, every word is God-breathed, if you believe that, then your belief in Christ is the Jesus of the Bible the son of God who condescended from heaven to earth we we will believe it based upon the scripture so we can study christology let's say if we're we're moving from scripture to Christ you can study christology through historical means and then you study christology through doctrinal means and next you study it perhaps systematically but the goal is to make some rhyme and reason and sense of all the data, data and compile it. So you move from historical to systematic. But in the end, folks, you need to have a biblical theology about Jesus. But that's also true about the Word. The Scriptures themselves speak uh, of themselves. And they, uh, they, hold, they hold up the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus said, I did not come to uh, destroy the law, but, that, but to fulfill the the law. He says at other times, uh, beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, he spoke concerning himself. So even in the Old Testament scriptures, doctrine of revelation, who's the central character of the Old Testament? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Now let me say something pretty pointedly to you. I want to remind you that moralistic stories won't cut it. Amen. When you do Sunday school lessons, when you teach children, when you teach youth, don't be teaching them that you've got to be a Moses or Daniel, or David, or Zacchaeus. Because the central figure in that lesson is Jesus Christ and not them. Folks, if we're not careful, we're going to teach a bunch of do-gooders that that are kind and that they want to be good to people, they want to be kind. They got the moral things down, but they didn't deal with the fact that they're sinners before God and they need Jesus. Are y'all listening? It's very easy for us to be a moralistic church and, and teach, whether you're teaching on Zacchaeus or anyone else, I'm not telling you, I am saying to you that being kind is good. And, and being like Moses is good. And being like Abraham is good. But I want to remind you that Abraham wasn't too good to his wife. I want to remind you that Moses disobeyed God and God killed him. And they still hadn't found his burial plot to this day. The Bible says something about that, right? Uh, David was an adulterer. All of those people in the Bible needed a Savior. So what we need to understand is there is a Christ-centered, there's a Christ-centered focus. Uh, Maybe not every word of the Old Testament, maybe not every phrase, but folks, Jesus is in every aspect of the Old Testament. So we need to keep that in mind as we're teaching the Word of God. As we're teaching these youngsters that are four and five, don't make them think that they can be good enough to go to heaven. Don't make them think that doing good things make them a Christian. Folks, if that's the case, Jesus didn't need to come down from heaven. We need a Savior, folks. Amen? We need Jesus. And after you're saved, then you act like a Christian. Uh, But it's very easy for us to think that we're saved through morality. Uh, We were guilty of that 40 years ago in the United States of America. You remember the moral majority? It was us versus them. But here's the deal. You were the them before Christ. Right? We needed Jesus, so we didn't take the gospel. We needed to be taking the gospel to the world. Not trying to uh, change people morally. And of course, you need to be preaching and teaching on morals and duty and doing things right. But folks, that flows out of a heart changed by God. Because you can't be saved by the law. Right? The law says you got to do this. And we found out quickly you can't do this. But the gospel is, it's been accomplished for you. It's been done for you. Why? Because you're a sinner. Does that make sense? What time is it? I don't know either. Alright. So, what I want, to, want you to understand is Jesus is all over the Bible. Okay? So, I, I bring that to your mind to think about Scripture and Revelation. The goal of the Scripture is to put the spotlight on the Son of God. Even when it comes to the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis 3.15. The Bible reminds us. We call it the four gleams of the gospel. He will bruise your heel but the seed shall crush the serpent's head. Who's the seed? That's right. All the way from Genesis 3.15 you you've got proto-euangelion which is the four gleams of the gospel. And then God will send his seed. You will bruise his heel but he will crush your head. When we come to chapter 12, God tells Abraham that he will bless all the nations through your seed. Nata listened to a sermon the other day that, that the sermon title was basically this, out of Abraham, out of Genesis 12. God gives you dreams. And you've got to chase your dreams. And God will give you the ability to go after your dream. That text has not one thing to do with dreams. It's a promise of a sovereign God to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by the king. Has nothing to do with your dreams. You see how we can make this moralistic? How we can make this? The Bible is about me, and how I put project my humanity on the Bible? No, folks, you need to let the Bible speak about its Creator. Let the Bible speak about its King. Let the Bible remind us. So Abraham, God tells Abraham that He will bless all the nations through your seed. You come to chapter forty-nine, and God says, "The scepter that which uh, the King holds will not depart from Judah until Shiloh." Uh, Peace comes to Shiloh. Deuteronomy eighteen says there's a prophet coming that is greater than Moses. Amen. Second Samuel seven teaches us that there will be a future son of David who will reign forever and ever. When we get to the Hebrew hymn book, which is called the Psalms, Christ is all over it. He is both king, he is king, prophet, he is prophet, priest, and king. When we get to Isaiah 53, we find that this Davidic king is going to atone for the sins of the entire world. Who is he talking about, folks? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the living God. The Old Testament is full of Christology. This is true in the Gospels and in the letters. And Revelation is perhaps the greatest Christological book ever written. And so, in essence, we're asking, what does the totality of the Bible say to us about any particular doctrine? And so... We're going to take those eight, and we're already into Scripture. and We'll deal with that a little more later. But I just want to whet your appetite of how we're going to study these. And uh, I hope you believe this. Uh, again, this is not to be taken over this. Got me? My light came on. All right. I could have used that earlier. But it is a creed. It is a confession that we believe meshes as much as is possible with the word of the living God to teach us what we believe about certain doctrines. So even the Baptist faith and message is going to have a doctrinal stance on all eight doctrines that we're going to talk about. It's in the Baptist faith and message. All right? Any questions tonight? By the way, I think I said this morning I had been here six months. I've actually been here two and a half years What I had done when I walked out of my office is I had said, you know what? I've been here 32 months today. I divided that by two, and it came out at 2.6. So I had the six in my mind when I went up here. So I'm sorry about that. I've been here two and a half years, all right? It feels like six months at times, but sometimes it feels like 10 years. You know how that works. Jesus said, all right, Peter was told by, uh, Peter said to us, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day, right? All right. Um, you can look that up, David. Where did you find that, David? That parallel between the 63 and the 2000. Uh, yeah. All right. No, it up, we'll, we'll, post it. We'll, we'll we'll post it for you. Uh, the one David showed me was highlighted on the places that changed. Uh, there was probably, I think, on the scripture, there was a little bit of uh, extrapolation to make it clearer. Um, Uh, I think the role of women in the church, there's a statement in the 2000 about that, right, James? I'm pretty sure. Uh, Family? Family. Yes, yes. So we need to update, period, okay, to become a 2000 uh, faith and message church. Uh, But we will supply that for you. Or you can probably Google it and see how the 63 and 2000 and what was changed there. Uh, do we have those available, David or Don, or do we have those 200 they could grab tonight? Or they were in Don's office. I think everybody to Don's office. Just pile in there. <laughs> James is going to go grab them. The we'll, we'll have them out there in the hallway. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, put on some glasses, okay? If you're like me, I, I there's just no way I can I could keep reading through it. And you can actually blow it up on the copy if you'd like to. But and you can probably read it straight offline. I'm sure you can, Baptist Faith and Message. All right, any other questions tonight? Don't leave out of here with something stuck in your crawl and you didn't ask. How about you, young men? Y'all got it? Uh, Daniel sat with me today at Godfather's and we talked about uh, deacons and elders. He wanted to know what that is, why, why you have them. That's a good question, isn't it? All right. Yeah, I can, if y'all want to hear that. Uh, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, canon means read, meaning what was the standard of which we had the canonization of the tw- uh, 66 books of the Bible. How do we come To those 66. And why were apocryphal books left out. Or pseudepigrapha writings. Why were they left out. Yeah I can. uh, I'll do a lesson on that. And everybody's going to say bless your heart. Right. No. No seriously. You do need to know why. That was accepted. And why we have that. So I would be more than happy to do that. Ma'am. Yeah I'll give you some. Natalie said that on the way here. You got any handouts tonight. I said nope. (laughs) And I even had Jake, uh, Jake Uber, could track my sermon today because I gave him notes. And uh, his ADHD, whatever he could at least put the word in the blank. He said, Preacher, I do good when you put the notes out there. I said, well, good. All right. We'll keep putting them out there. There he is. He got another one. Did you get tonight? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Any uh, other questions? All right. I guess we'll go home. All right. Brother, would you mind voicing us a closing prayer? When y'all having revival, Mr. Richard? June 9th, Sunday through Wednesday, beginning of June 9th. June 9th, Sunday through Wednesday, the uh, revival services over at Chadwick, 1st Baptist. And who's uh, evangelist? Richard Cox. Yeah, you've had him. You've had him. The guy's got a great first name. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> But to just invite you all to go over. Uh, we were going to try to go over and sing, and David still may do that, but I'm going to be at the Southern Baptist Convention at, during that time. Uh, so, praise the Lord. I think it's important to know, it's just not there. That's right. When you got got 5,500 5, manuscripts that date back to within 30 years of the life of Christ, and you can put all those variant readings together, And come out with the scripture you have. And the question is, do you have a reliable copy of God's word? God saith the word. You do. The same God that gave it to you is the same God that preserved it for all those thousands of years. It's an awesome piece. Nothing compares to the word of God. Amen. Praise the Lord.